US businessman Dan Friedkin takes Red over. Redbird has recently made waves. MLB and NBA appear to be the leader. Ed Sheeran becomes Ipswich Township. Saudi Prince adds French side Chateau. NFL finalises new 11-year media rights deal with Amazon. Early May. The Italian Football Federation announces that multi-club ownership will be prohibited, though current multi-club owners will remain unaffected, unless their clubs promote or relegate to a league where they already own a club. Early August. Has the Italian Football Federation backflipped on multi-club ownership? I'm Rhys Lenarduzzi, and this is Sportonomic, a podcast sponsored by Athlon Partners. In this episode, I look at the transnational phenomenon of multi-club ownership in football, and I focus in on current affairs regarding multi-club ownership in Italy. My first guest is Lorenzo Cavallari. Lorenzo has been a strategy and operations consultant with Deloitte, has worked in management and logistics with AS Roma and SS Lazio, he's developed Liga Pro Serious C club-level commercial and sponsorship plans, and recently completed a first-of-its-kind study on multi-club ownership for the FIFA Master of Management, Law and Humanities. With colleagues, Hossam Adin Bedier, Zaina Hamasha, and Charlotte Nyangeri. My second guest is Giacomo Galladini. Giacomo contributes to Forbes on all things football and business, and he is the senior content editor for the Italian desk at OneFootball, one of the world's leading football apps. Giacomo has been a voice to the English speaking world on the recent multi club ownership headline events coming out of Italy. More on that later. One way to measure the momentum of a particular thing and how serious it ought to be taken might be when that thing earns its own initialism. Multi-club ownership, or as it's increasingly known nowadays, MCO, is the name given to those entities that have an ownership stake in multiple clubs. I asked Lorenzo Cavallari to speak to the MCO phenomenon generally and to touch on how unexplored this space is in terms of academic research. Right. So MCO in its, in its narrowest sense, if you will, uh, you can define it as one club, one person or an entity owning shares in more than one club. Of course, when you define it that way, then you open yourself up to a whole bunch of questions about what MCO isn't, right? Do you consider undisclosed and implicit links between two persons who own shares and MCO? Do you consider the acquisition of women's clubs as part of a, of a portfolio as MCO? Do you consider partnerships, just as ones that we see between um, English clubs and Belgian ones, for instance, where they have agreements on player transfers, on, on sharing of knowledge as MCO? So what we've done in our research was really to, to narrow the scope down to explicit MCO for a clear business or sporting purpose. Uh, and of course, the, the biggest examples there are, are CFG, Red Bull, the likes of, of the big, big umbrella organizations. I think what's interesting is that if you look back from a historical perspective, uh, MCO is, is not a new thing. You know, you Google it right now and people say it's a rising trend. It's something that's coming out. It isn't really. Um, you go back all the way to the 90s. Uh, you had uh, Parmalat, which owned Parma in Serie A uh, and Palmeiras in Brazil. Now, granted, that was just for a, a branding and marketing exercise to open themselves up to the South American market to sell their products. Um, but it did have some elements of MCO in it. And similarly, then you move on to, to Enic in the 90s, which was perhaps the, really the watershed moment, the first case of investing in football clubs for a monetary reason. Um, and then, of course, that brought in all the regulatory issues, which I think we'll talk about later uh, with the CAF cases uh, regarding their ownership. 
but yeah, so it's something that's been evolving quite a bit. Uh, of course, nowadays you've got, as I mentioned, these, these big organizations. What's interesting is that there's actually many more. Um, we did some research. There's something around 140 clubs around the world right now, which are part of roughly 50 MC organizations. And I think that's only destined to grow in the, in the near future. FIFA reported that as of 2018, just 9% of national member associations had directives for foreign club ownership, but 33% had regulatory provisions for MCOs, rendering it a considerably more regulated phenomenon. But still, just one-third of member associations regulate. Most of the explicit regulation throughout the levels of football relates to the potential jeopardization of integrity to competitions if two clubs within the same competition have the same owner. I'll let Lorenzo expand on this shortly. Whilst one could simply list the National Association's MCO regulations, the reality is that for the National Associations that have expressed regulations, it's the varying reasons for regulating that one may find more interesting. I'll cover Italy with my next guest, but Scotland, for instance, regulates MCO via Article 13 of the Articles of Association of the Scottish Football Association and refers to the section as dual interest in clubs. It is understood that Scotland have a high standard when it comes to MCO, so as to ensure that its competition does not become the reserve competition to the English Premier League or another larger league. With that in mind, one can then understand why Mike Ashley's attempt to increase an already 8.92% shareholding in Rages FC to 29.9% was rejected. The Newcastle United owner had also previously signed an agreement that he would not own more than 10% of the club and he would not exercise its influence on the board. Given Lorenzo and his colleagues have just completed an extensive study on MCO, I asked him about the regulations, where they might work, where they don't, and he gives some insight into the current MCO situation in Mexico. Yeah, I think regulation is, is of course, one of the key points. You know, whenever you talk about MCO, uh, the main issue that comes out is the integrity of competition. If somebody owns more than one club in a league or two clubs in different leagues that somehow play each other, um, what are fans going to think? Is that going to be fair? Uh, is there going to be any kind of manipulation going on? Um, and so the regulation is really super important. Um, and what's interesting there is that as part of our research, what we did was kind of look up uh, what the different rules in different uh, member associations, different countries were, also at a confederation level and, of course, at FIFA level. And, and what came out is that FIFA does mention MCO and its regulations, I believe Article 20, um, but it doesn't explicitly regulate them, which is fair because it is arguably outside your jurisdiction. Um, where you find most of the regulation is at a confederation level. And, and all confederations, all six of them, have some element uh, of rules. Now, of course, they differ in their definition. Some talk about the size of influence, some talk about control, and then the actual meaning of those varies and is subject, as we'll see, to, to lots of um, ad hoc considerations. Um, but even more interestingly, at a country level, it's a completely fragmented landscape. You've got countries where it's allowed, countries where it's allowed on paper, but actually it's going on, others where it's completely banned. Germany, of course, has uh, the famous 50 plus one rule, which you know further limits um, investment in football clubs. And so when you think about it, it, MCO is, by definition, especially now in the globalized world, a transnational phenomenon. Uh, we see groups that own clubs in different countries, different continents, but there is no integrated approach to it, um, no common and uniform way of regulating it. 
And so I, I believe that necessarily will be something that will come up um, sooner rather than later. Mexico is a very particular case in the sense that I believe in 2013, uh, the owners of the Liga MX signed an agreement to, to ban MCO within the next five years. Uh, but then the situation in practice is that often these there's six out of 18 clubs, I believe, are part of an MCO in the Liga MX. Um, and some of those ownership groups also own the TV networks in Mexico. So there's a conflict of interest between you know, who sells the broadcasting rights to whom. And I think, you know, the lack of, they, they claim a lack of um, suitable investors uh, or, or bad experiences with previous ones as a reason for, for not changing the current model. So yeah, comp complex situation there and definitely one that should be, it's very interesting to look at. Knowing better than most what is happening in the MCO space, I asked Lorenzo what he envisages for the future of MCO regulations. That's a good one. Um, I think you always have to keep in mind that um, you regulate something to, to fix the problem, right? You have an objective and, and then once you define and have a clear objective, that's when you can go and build, if needed, um, a regulatory framework around it. And of course, some might argue that owning multiple clubs in different leagues is, is not an issue as long as they're not playing each other. You know, investment in football should be encouraged. As long as there is no conflict of interest, the, the reputation of competitions isn't undermined, um, why would you go in and try and change that? But of course, um, what, what is happening more and more, not, not just within countries, but also I find a really fascinating paradox between the fact FIFA is expanding the Club World Cup to have more clubs in it. UEFA has just introduced uh, the new UEFA Conference League, which expands massively the number of clubs that might face each other in European competition. And I'm sure there's similar things in other confederations. And so unless a solid regulation is made and, and, and written out, these kinds of competitions and these kinds of dynamics will for sure become a hotbed of potential issues. So regulation is definitely needed. I think some of the most interesting aspects there, as we said, being a transnational phenomenon, FIFA should probably get involved. And specifically, I, I believe looking at limitations on, you know, on player transfers within MCOs. Currently, you know, the new RSTP coming out has limitations on the number of, of loans on the number of transfers between two clubs. Um, and that could definitely be a way of, of limiting um, phenomena of player hoarding or excessive loaning back and forth between clubs that are part of an MCO. And of course, really having a clear definition, what is the size of influence? What is control? In civil society, you, you will always have a need for some Chinese walls, you know, um, it will always be, you can make an argument that two clubs will always be linked somehow. There will be someone who has some kind of link to somebody else, uh, as implicit as that might be. And, you know, something that we heard very often is from M owners of MCOs is that we, they've set up independent boards. Uh, and often that is a sufficient proof of the independence of the two clubs. Uh, but then, of course, actually determining how independent those boards are and, and do they work together on, on a corporate strategy at the MCO level. That, that is the, the next point to address. As was touched on earlier, the MCO space is largely unexplored when it comes to research. Lorenzo and his colleagues, FIFA Master Research on MCOs, is the first of its kind in many ways. And I asked him to speak to some of the findings, particularly in relation to fans. I think, you know, you go online, you look up MCO and, and most of the content you will find uh, is about the, the strategy, the, the sporting and, and economical um, benefits that you might get from pursuing this kind of strategy. 
there is some stuff on, on the legal aspect uh, and how that you know, might affect what we just talked about. But what we found was the really clear gap was looking at the topic from a player-centric perspective. Often players are considered only as an asset that could be you know, increased in value and then traded within an MCO rather than looking at the player himself and how they might relate to, to these dynamics. And the second one being uh, a fan-centric perspective. So looking how fans are impacted by MCO, by their club changing ownership, by being part of a wider group of clubs. And so um, specific to the fans, what we did is we carried out a survey with roughly 600 fans from across the world. Um, and we, we tried to look at three main things. Um, first, we looked at awareness, trying to understand how aware they were, both of the concept of MCO, as well as of being part of an MCO where that was the case. Um, and what we found is that awareness was, was very high, around the 80 to 90% mark, regardless of the age of the fan, the geographical location, specific club that they supported. Of course, there were small variances. You know, some clubs have much more explicit ways of showing their belonging to an MCO. You can think about Red Bull uh, adding the RB um, prefix to, to all their club names or City doing that in a lesser measure with, with City. Um, but I think the key takeaway there of, of this awareness is firstly that fans are aware and therefore there will also be a higher scrutiny on what club owners do. Uh, you can't imagine that fans don't know about what's going on at a board level. Uh, and they're, you know, we know how sensitive they can be about uh, the way money is allocated between two clubs, the way players might be transferred. So that's something to keep in mind for club owners. And the second thing is going back to competition integrity. It's easy to forget that perceived integrity is just as important as the actual integrity. If the fans don't see the competition as being fair, um, that's all that matters really, even though you might have very solid rules. Uh, and so the rules really need to take into account, you know, that per outside perception of the fan base, given how aware they are. On the general fan research, the finding of the fan of the MCO, in addition to the individual clubs that sit within the MCO, is a significant finding, as is the opportunity such a finding presents. I asked Lorenzo to speak to this. The second thing we looked at um, was perception. Uh, so how do they feel about being part of, of the MCO? And we measured it across three dimensions. We looked at what do you feel the sporting impact of being part of an MCO is for you? And also economic and um, from a brand and popularity perspective. And what we found there is that, you know, overall it was actually all quite positive, especially from a financial point of view. And that was seen as the, the main benefit. Of course, again, it, it diverges between, between MCOs Red Bull and CFG have the highest ratings. We had a bunch of fans from, from Arsenal representing the, the Kroenke group, although you know their disagreement might lie more um, with their preferences about the owner rather than MCO as a concept. Um, and what was really interesting also at, a, at the level of this uh, individual club is that often individual feeder clubs had just as good a perception of MCO as the parent club which suggested to us that um, even though they might be giving up their best players to the parent club, the benefits of being part of MCO, be that through the loans they receive, the financial support, um, outweigh, outweigh that, you know, being part of the talent supply chain and, and being at the bottom of that chain. And the last thing we looked at, and perhaps, you know, the most out there one, was we really were curious about um, seeing if the concept of the MCO fan exists, somebody who supports a group rather than just a club. And it might be a bit futuristic, um, but what we found is that 
one third of fans um, actually state that yes, they do identify as a supporter of an MCO. So a Man City fan might think, I'm also a CFG fan. Um, and interestingly, a quarter of fans say that a club being part of their same MCO makes them much more likely to support it. So a, a Man City fan might be much more likely to support, say, a Montevideo, Torque, um, Turkey fan. And therefore, you know, it, it, it's really interesting. And at the same time, we, we also we have to nuance this view because uh, ultimately the unit of support is still the club. Um, the, the unique club, and then that's no one. We had strong disagreement with the, with the statement. I support my MCO more than my own club, naturally. Uh, but it's interesting to see if you know, with as commercialization keeps eroding um, local ties and, and traditions, whether that might change. Especially because I see it as a very interesting potential for for club owners to monetize this cross support. Um, if a fan of one club supports the other clubs as well, there's many opportunities to make money off of that. And so we, we took it a step further and we tried to, to quantify cross support within a club. We built a matrix by asking the fans of each club how much they support the other clubs in that MCO. And it was a very fragmented landscape. Again, you know, some, some clubs seem to have very high levels of support for other ones. Uh, others seem to not really care about the MCO as a whole. Um, we tested a few variables to understand why that might be. Um, including, you know, the level of integration about the, of the visual identity of the name, whether that helps. Um, looking at the um, stake of ownership, maybe a fully owned club might be closer to the hearts of fans than one that is just, you know, a 20% investment. But the one that we found most convincing was the length of time that the club had been part of the MCO. Uh, so, for instance, in CFG, New York and Melbourne have been there the longest, and they're the ones where we see the highest level of, of received cross-support from the fans. And that makes sense from a practical perspective as well, because of course, the longer uh, a club is, is part of the MCO, the more aware fans are, and possibly the more likely they are to support it. I think um, a final point on that note is, is looking at what the actual opportunities for monetization of this cross support can be. And, and we've seen a few. Um, we've talked to some club owners which actually go out to sponsors and market um, their MCO as a whole. So, um, you know, you're getting access to multiple markets if you, if you sponsor us. Um, and those markets might be particularly interesting for, for a given number of reasons. Uh, we've seen the recent Puma deal with CFG where they actually sponsor six clubs. They don't sponsor New York because they have a deal with um, Adidas and MLS. Uh, but I believe City and, of course, um, five other clubs are part of that 650 million pounds for 10 years deal. Uh, so that's an interesting way to look at it. And then, of course, um, you know, if, if the other fans in the group are supporting the other, all, all of the clubs, then you've got more eyeballs, uh, higher audiences, and that, that can always be a way to, um, to, to increase your revenues from a broadcasting perspective, uh, from a sales of merchandise. And that's on the demand side. On the offer side, uh, you have more bargaining power. So you can look to, to reduce um, your costs in terms both of, of scouting, um, of sourcing uh, all kinds of, of, of materials that you're using. Um, so really, economically, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that the synergies that are available by running this kind of structure are very interesting. Lorenzo and his colleagues also considered the players of multi-club ownership groups. Here's what they found. We look at players as well. Um, I think the key points that came out there uh, are really kind of mind-boggling in a way because if you think about it, MCO has the potential of completely redefining um, the 
employee-employer relationship. Um, we're not very far from, from players. There's already right now clauses in contracts where a player cannot oppose themselves to a move to another one of the clubs within the MCO. Uh, now, you know, there's an argument to be made that that, that does go against a number of, of employment law rules or what should be part and shouldn't be part of a contract. Um, and we're not very far from a player being contracted to an MCO directly rather than the individual football club. And so that completely changes the mobility of players within the international transfer market. It changes the relationship to the employer. Um, and that's not necessarily a negative thing. Um, we also saw from a player perspective that very often a club becomes more attractive on a transfer market because they are part of the MCO. Uh, we had a player uh, currently playing at Udinese who, who transferred to Udinese because he knew of the possibility to then potentially go on and play in the Premier League with Watford. Uh, so that's something that you know shouldn't be shouldn't be forgotten. The other aspect is that, um, especially in MCO models where the main uh, criteria, the main strategy is player development, something they do is to try and have a uniform playing tactic, playing strategy, a uniform way of coaching that players don't really feel the change when they transfer from one club to the other. Uh, that could be the case with Leipzig and Salzburg and, and to a further extent, Liefering. Um, but what we actually saw is that, you know, while management might think that the process is quite seamless, given that they're going from the same playing style, same coaching, um, actually the changing of league, the changing of country, the potential relocation of families, that all has an impact uh, on the player and it might not be as, as moved as they think. Um, the negotiating part might be very smooth since you're not having to deal with agents necessarily. It's a club, like club to club, uh, club to same club relationship, if you will. Um, the, the transfer fee, you know, is it, it, a fiction more than a, and it might be used to try and fix any financial fair play issues. Uh, it's more a bargaining chip than anything else. Um, so what really matters there is, is the player's will to, to move, and that's something that can be uh, circumvented with the contract. I wanted to give Lorenzo the opportunity to tell us what he envisages for the future of MCO. Yeah, that's where the, the really fun predictions can come in, in the sense that, um, you know, if, if you want to stretch the, the concept to the furthest it can go, uh, why wouldn't you think of having one day a Barcelona-Beijing playing uh, a Milan-Rio de Janeiro, right? If clubs can own franchises in every country, uh, what prevents them from, from playing each other? Uh, and similarly, especially with you know everything that's been going on with the Super League lately, uh, why wouldn't CFG one day decide to create their own league where only CFG clubs play each other, right? Um, and then reap all the benefits of that. So you know these are the out there scenarios. Of course, if you look at a, a more short to medium term realistic outcome of MCO in the coming years, um, I think I always say, if you're in the business of, of running sports properties and sports franchises and clubs, and you're good at doing it, why wouldn't you do that across multiple clubs? Uh, it's your expertise. You're good at it. Um, we've seen all the potential benefits that can, can come out of it. We've seen the different strategies that you can adopt, um, be that from, from a sporting point of view, an economic one, even just diversifying your business portfolio. Um, and the other point to consider is the inflation of transfer prices. Um, you look at Man City, who purchased, uh, I think, Melbourne for something around $12 million. In the current transfer market, that is one good player, right? And then you've covered your investment. Um, 
So, you know, as, as prices inflate, it becomes, I believe, even more attractive to invest in clubs, especially ones that allow you to, to have a presence in a market where um, talent might be, uh, you know, readily available. The South American market is always a great example, and, and City Football Group uh, purchased Montevideo there purely for that reason, arguably, uh, to have, you know, a presence there and then be able to attract talent at an earlier stage in their career. Um, and again, the return on investment is there potentially with just a few a few players coming out of that system. So I definitely see it as a, as a phenomenon that will grow. Of course, the last 18 months have put a crunch on, on club finances. Um, and there is undeniably a barrier to entry to MCO. It is sometimes a significant investment to go out and purchase a club. So it might not always be the best strategy for everybody. But again, it, I think it's inevitably something that, that will grow, um, especially now with the use of special purpose acquisition companies to raise capital and, and, and go buy these clubs. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see more and more larger groups um, with clubs all across the world coming into, into play. And now, a special shout out to Lorenzo's colleagues who completed this first of its kind study. I just love to acknowledge uh, my colleagues on the research. Um, so, Hassamedine Bedir, Charlotte Yanjeri, and Zina Hamarsha, who were working with me on, on the research. Uh, and of course, CIS and the FIFA Master for, for supporting it. After the break, I speak to Giacomo Galladini about what's happening in Italy with MCOs. In late June, Giacomo Galladini wrote an article for Forbes titled What's Next for Serie A After FIGC Rejected Blind Trust to Sell Salernitana? A lot can happen in a month, so I asked Giacomo to bring us up to speed with what is happening in Italy now. So the multi-club ownership landscape in Italy is quite variegated. The most notorious recently is the Lotito Salernitana case, so uh, Claudio Lotito owning both uh, the Salernitana football team that had been freshly promoted to the Serie A and Serie A giant Lazio. And this is the current hot topic that is sparkling um, all this attention around the topic. But there are other um, multi-club ownership in Italy, and there always have been. It's not a new thing. Notoriously, when we are only focusing on the Serie A, so Italy Top Flight Soccer League, we have the other notorious example on top of Lazio's, Lotito's and Salernitana. We have the De Laurentiis family uh, with uh, Aurelio De Laurentiis and his son Luigi uh, owning both SSC, Napoli and also Bari. So De Laurentiis uh, really big movie producer in Italy and bought Napoli in 2004 after bankruptcy. And in 2018, he did the same move with Bari, but he did it through his company, which is uh, his movie production company called Film Mauro. He bought Bari in 2018 after they went bankruptcy and uh, appointed his son Luigi as the um, advisor there. The situation hasn't been really as good as planned because Bari is still in the third division. Um, but Napoli is profiting from this relationship. I'm going to go uh, in, in details about that afterwards. And it's one of the most notorious. And the other one is, are the uh, Setti family. So the owners of Serie A, Elas Verona, 
which is not literally a multi-club ownership because the Seti family owns only a minority stake in Mantova, which is in third division. And then there are other examples uh, that are not limited to the Serie A. For example, the Pozzo family, the owner of Udinese, that owns Watford in the Premier League, and Granada in La Liga, in the Spanish La Liga. It's something that uh, ownerships try to do sometimes because obviously there are a lot of benefits and it pays off on the long run. Uh, and notorious examples from the fact that it's really paying off is that a lot of current owners are trying to do so. Uh, let's uh, take uh, Sampdoria's president, Massimo Ferrero, who tried to buy Palermo up to until last year, on top of many, many other ownerships that are really tr- owners that are really trying to diversify their output when it comes to professional football leagues. So not only in Italy, because the benefits are um, really, really uh, prominent for them. And um, it's something that it's a bit of like of a buffer zone. Like uh, there is a bit of a legislation, but at the same time, it's not so clear. So everybody is trying to take the most out of it. Beyond the mere headlines, there are at a deeper level regulatory reasons for these current affairs. I asked Giacomo to talk about the Italian regulations that have caused such a stir, and particularly Article 16. Uh, Yes, so um, Claudio Lotito, so Lazio's president, was forced to sell Salernitana, uh, which was his second club, after Salernitana was promoted to the Serie A. Because Article 16 of the Italian Football Federation prevents the same owner to have two clubs in the same professional league in Italy, which means the first three division, which is Serie A, Serie B, and Serie C. If there is a case in which both teams that are connected to a majority stakeholder, there is the same for both teams, obviously for a conflict of interest, you cannot play in the same league because the implications would be obviously... um, controversial but not only from a competitive and professional point of view but also because most of the time it is a really huge advantage for a team to have a satellite team so to say because what happened between Lazio and Salernitana is pretty simple you have a a situation in which you have a feeder club so a lot of Lazio's player or young prospect or promising talents, they would be sold or loaned to Salernitana in order for them to collect experience. Or, for example, if uh, Lazio would run out of players that uh, have European citizenship, for example, if Lazio is buying a really promising a South American or African or North American prospect, and they are already a full, they already have their three or four slots of extra European players to play. They could just loan it to Salernitana and park it there until the player develops and they don't have to worry about it. The same goes for the wage. There are a lot of implications when it comes to the financial fair play. And it would be unfair to allow Lazio to... Uh, kind of like divert some of the uh, management costs and the wage costs and the salary of the players to Salernitana in order not to breach the limit when it comes to the expenses, stuff expenses that the financial fair play is imposing. So 
obviously it would be an unfair advantage for Lotito and uh, the rule, uh, the Article 16 of the Football Federation forces Lotito to sell Salernitana by six months. So Lotito has six months by the 31st of December, by the end of the year, he needs to sell. Otherwise, the um, second team, Salernitana, will be excluded from the Serie A. Initially, reports out of Italy were that the blind trust arrangement of Salernitana had been rejected by the Italian Federation. As Giacomo has just explained, the current situation has been ever-changing and the blind trust has been accepted for now. I asked him to explain the intricacies and conditions of the current arrangement with Salernitana. The blind trust was a solution that uh, the Football Federation offered, or better to say, forced Lotito in order to allow Salernitana to participate to the Serie A. So Lotito offered, well, a very, let's say, a blind trust in which the antitrust organization that would oversee the financial process of this blind trust could not really see that all the steps were doing transparently. So to say, Salernitana was owned by Lotito through his brother Enrico Lotito and his brother-in-law Marco Mezzaroma. The two trustees that Lotito created in this blind trust in order to sell Salernitana by six months were somehow financially connected to a certain degree, to a certain extent, to the same two Enrico Lotito and Marco Mezzaroma. This is why the Football Federation initially rejected this blind trust and said this and this and this needs to be changed or else we are not granting Salernitana uh, to step up to the Serie A, uh, which is what Lotito did. His lawyers and his sport director did their homework and they figured out uh, to come out with a new offer uh, that was accepted on the 7th of July by the Italian Football Federation. So the current situation as it stands is that there are two new trustees one is called Mellor, which is owned by Susanna Isgro, and the other is Widar, which is owned by Paolo Bertoli. So two completely different companies, two completely different and independent association or organizations. And those two trustees have six months to sell Salernitana. Anyway, the Football Federation is absolutely not happy with the current situation because the whole situation of Salernitana jeopardized the beginning of the Serie A. So there was a big deal. Um, Benevento, that was uh, relegated, was hoping for a repechage. So they are pushing the Football Federation to double-check all the passages and all the steps. Um, and also, um, the Football Federation is currently discussing um, a law, a new potential law, tomorrow in a federal meeting, uh, whose objective is to ban multi-club ownership at all professional soccer level in Italy, so the first three division. Uh, is it a bit controversial? Because should the proposal pass, the new rule should be retroactive. 
So the objective of this new law is to force, for example, De Laurentiis family that owns at the same time Napoli and Bari to get rid of one of the two clubs in order to prevent the situation to arise again at the very, very crucial time like this uh, time because they don't have much time to sell the comp, the one of the teams. It would require a lot of time, so they don't want to get to do it at the very last moment. However, according to Italian Daily La Repubblica, the rule, the new rule, will for not only force the owners to sell their club, but it will create some kind of case because uh, the owners bought their club in a legitimate way, and you cannot, by law, force the owner to sell their assets without a reason. Which means the owners will probably appeal and this new law could be contested in court and could hardly hold on a legislative level because the federation and the owners could go into a long and expensive legal battle and potentially they could warn off potential investors, which is what the federation doesn't want to happen. Uh, but at the same time, there is no legislative framework um, on a higher level as well uh, so that Italy could potentially follow up and go after a FIFA, for example, or UEFA legislation that would prevent multi-club ownership. So everybody is playing their own, car their own cards. We still don't know what's going to happen. Nobody really played their card on the table. Um, some um, people familiar with the matter uh, are saying that uh, the multi-club ownership could disappear on the long run, like the multiplayer ownership disappeared in 2014. So they will make a rule that would prevent, uh, um, as clubs were sharing the ownership of a certain player, they would do the same with the clubs. However, it might take a lot of time and is not based on a solid ground. What becomes most pressing in terms of questions then is the possible implications and outcomes for failure to comply to the conditions set forth by the Italian Federation. Giacomo made the following comments on that front. So when it comes to the implication, I would say on the short run, I can see Salernitana struggling on the transfer market, for example, um, which is something directly connected to the team and to the potential new ownership that could take over Salernitana from the trustees. Because the situation for Salernitana is not really looking good because up to two weeks ago, Salernitana had, if I am not, not wrong, 11 players on loan from Lazio. So a big chunk of the players that were the reason why Salernitana got promoted to the first division, they need to find a new team. Because not only they cannot continue with Salernitana, but they cannot even go to a third club before being loaned again to Salernitana. This is the short-time uh, implication of the trustees. The Football Federation is really looking into it. So no funny stuff. No players loaned from Salernitana to Milan and then AC Milan that currently owns uh, the performances of a certain player for this season then loans it back to Salernitana. They're not going to allow this to happen, which means that for a young team that has been just uh, promoted to the Serie A, it's going to be difficult to compete 
because the transfer market is kind of blocked. Also from a financial point of view, because the financial assets are limited. I don't really see the two trusts spending a lot of money betting on Salernitana to keep the level in Serie A and avoiding relegation should they not find a potential new buyer by December. So I think they did their own accounts and they are not really going to invest massively in the transfer market, which is really detrimental in my opinion, not only for Salernitana as a city or for their fans, but also for the competitive level of the Serie A, because you have a kind of like ambiguous uh, situation with Salernitana, which will, in my opinion, I'm 99% sure in a country like Italy, be really problematic. Uh, there's going to be uh, somebody at some point that would just really come up and say that it is a scandal that Salernitana is playing with no players at the top level for the Serie A. And I really can see the last five or six match days with Salernitana fighting for relegation. Somebody could just start in pointing fingers, but this is a, a long-term uh, um, implications. And should everything go the way is planned by the 1st of January, I really hope for Serie A and for Salernitana that there is going to be a new devoted and committed ownership uh, for them to have a fresh start in the Serie A. Let's not forget that uh, Salernitana is a big city, is the second biggest city in Campania. Um, traditionally, uh, they have a big rivalry with Naples. Uh, they have been waiting for this for over 50 years. So I really think that the city and the fans and, and the competitive level of the Serie A really deserves the best possible outcome out of this situation. As a football fan and someone who journalistically researches and writes about football regularly, I wanted to get Giacomo's thoughts and preferences on MCO regulation more generally. Um, yeah, I think that uh, personally what I really like when it comes to uh, club ownership is the Bundesliga uh, method. Or let's say the 50 plus 1, so the Funzisch plus 1, the 50 plus 1 rule, um, which is, it's highly debated actually right now because, you know, some people are really in favor of that and they really regard it as uh, something that could potentially, which is already existing, it could potentially be extended also to other league in order to uh, prevent, you know, uh, rich uh, companies or like investors funds to really alter the level of competition uh, in a league due to their uh, financial power. But at the same time, some other people are a bit um, afraid that this um, organizational framework could represent a limitation for the evolution, not only of the investments, but also for the evolution of the sport, of soccer per se. Um, I think I am in the middle of these two uh, stances because I still believe that, and the Super League was a good example of that, I still believe that fans uh, should have a say in the way that a club is run. Because I believe that, especially in Europe, a lot of soccer teams, they really have a strong identity with the cities 
that are hosting those clubs. So uh, especially in Germany, these Sportvereine are really old, traditional sport clubs. They're not really focused on football. They're like multi-sports. So they have rowing, they have swimming, and they really take a lot of pride in being members. Um, and I think this is what values the most the club because you're buying also the tradition of the club, you're buying the followership of a club, you're buying the environment, the atmosphere, the know-how of a certain nation, nation legislation or a certain city. And I think that this should be taken into account. So when I saw that the Glazer family of Manchester United um, started involving a bit more the fans in the board decision after the uprising of the um, uh, Super League. I was happy because I think it's a step in the right direction. So in my opinion, there should be some way in between that would allow, on one hand, the fans to have a say in the way that a business is run. And on the other hand, um, a legislation and a framework that would allow potential investors to continue developing the sport and you need innovation and you need investors and you need know-how in order to drive uh, the change and improve the sport. Whilst we were working on this episode, the FIGC, the Italian Federation, met to discuss the regulations on MCO moving forward, an issue that one must say has not really snuck up on them. Murmurs to come out from the meetings is that multi-club ownership will be prohibited entirely throughout Italian football, regardless of the level at which a club is playing, and even minority shares in more than one club will be outlawed. As was thought may be the case before the recent meetings, it sounds as though multi-club owners will be forced to sell one of their clubs within a period, perhaps two or three years. Should they not sell, it appears as though the prospective implications could be as severe as bans from league football in Italy. The effect of this is of course retroactive and goes against most accepted legal philosophy. Undoubtedly, lawyers for these ultra-wealthy multi-club owners will raise this, and a myriad of competition law questions remain, that one might envisage make it to courtrooms and other relevant decision-making bodies. When these owners bought these clubs, they did so on the representation that it was legal and they were free to do so. Additionally, a forced sale as opposed to a willing sale completely distorts the market and what a willing buyer and a willing seller would have otherwise settled on for a purchase price. One can easily imagine these club owners receiving well below market rate offers, as has been the case reportedly for Salernitana, given they must sell. Multi-club ownership regulation within a particular country is entirely reasonable, but this scenario raises a long list of questions. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Sportonomic. Make sure you find the show, follow and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. A huge thank you to this week's guests, Lorenzo Cavallari and Giacomo Gallardini. Thank you to our sponsors, Athlon Partners. You can find further detail at www.athlonpartners.com. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter, at Reese Lanaduzzi. Sportonomic is an afternoon sport group production.